Well, good morning. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma Northwest, and you can have a seat. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, if this is your first time, welcome. Um, we are glad to have you here and glad to share this morning with you. And um, yeah, that song is such a simple song, but a profound truth that God has been good to us. Um, over the years of our lives, the things that we have done, the things that we have left undone, God's goodness remains steady and faithful to us, and we praise Him for that this morning. Um, last week, we finished up a four-week series that we have done across our Soma congregation on the spiritual practice of justice and reconciliation. And I know from hearing uh, from a lot of you, from hearing from folks, talking with folks from if it's Soma Midtown and Soma Downtown, uh, that was a very powerful series, uh, both on Sunday mornings in our missional community groups as we continued the discussion there, just even in interpersonal relationships, one-to-one relationships that we have with each other, uh, talking more about what it looks like for us to be a people that practice justice. And when we talk about justice, that we're not just thinking about it in these big, big, broad terms, but thinking about each and every day, what does it look like for me as a follower of Jesus to step out into my days, into the spheres of influence that God has placed me to live justly, to live as a person of peace, to live as a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness for Jesus' sake. And so even though we are moving now back into um, our look through and our walk through the book of Exodus, um, those resources, the podcasts that we've recorded, uh, the different resources that we've put together on justice and reconciliation, those are still on our website, somaindy.com slash justice. And so if you want to continue to dig into this, uh, if you want to continue to um, uh, uh, dig down deeper uh, in conversations and um, uh, growing in awareness and just understanding what does it look like for me to make that commitment to walk as a person of justice and a person who seeks reconciliation with others. Um, please continue to dig into those resources. Um, one last thing on this. We are um, hoping to start um, at the end of October here, maybe going into November, um, uh, some some more focused groups that we're calling Be the Bridge groups, which we are going to, uh, uh, they're diverse groups of people from different uh, races and cultures that are going to get together and continue to discuss, continue to learn together, and to continue to practice just within this group uh, what it looks like to move closer together and to practice justice together. If you are interested in being a part of those groups, you can sign up on that same page on our website, and um, someone will get in touch with you with some more information on that. But as I mentioned this morning, we are going to dive back into the book of Exodus. We've been going, dipping in and out of uh, the book of Exodus really since, the, I think, the beginning of the year. And so what we are going to do is we are going to look uh, and finish up our walk through the book of Exodus. It's going to take us up until our Advent series starting at the beginning of December. But where we left uh, a little over a, a month ago, where we left off, we saw God's people 
at the foot of Mount Sinai, that God had brought them out of Egypt. He had delivered them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, and he had brought them through the desert to a place. He's bringing them to a place that he had promised their father Abraham, the father of this nation, generations ago, that he would bring his people to a place that they could call their own, a land that they could call their own, where they would live life with God under the rule of God and be a light to the nations that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is the one true God. But where we left off, we saw the people of God, the Israelites, at the foot of this mountain, Mount Sinai. And we saw them, they were scared to death because that mountain was covered with smoke. It was covered with fire. That mountain was shaking violently because God was on that mountain. God had come down and descended onto that mountain and his power and his majesty and his holy presence was there on that mountain. And God was giving his people instructions. God was giving his people a law to live by, to begin to shape them and to form them into a people, into a society that reflected the truth about him, the truth that he is a just God, that he is a righteous God, that he is a merciful God, that he is a holy God, that, he, that his way is the way of truth. And God had led them to this mountain and from this mountain, God would speak to his people. And we saw that his people, they, 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 they drew back in fear. And they said to Moses, their leader, we don't want to hear from God anymore. We don't want to hear directly from him. We want God to speak to you. And then you talk to us. Because it is too much of a fearful thing for us to be in the presence of God. God is shaping their identity as a people, what they should think about him, how they should treat each other, and what their relationship should be to the other people and the other nations around them. And so from this point on in the book of Exodus, two things are going to be front and center. And as we continue to, to walk through the book of Exodus, we are going to come back to these two things over and over. The first being that the covenant between God and his people is something that God will have to remind his people of over and over and over again. Because they won't take it seriously. They will wander away from it. They will think that their way of living is better than God's way for them. And then number two, what we are going to see, and we're going to dive into this particularly this morning, is that God gives them specific instructions and specific ways of constructing a place of worship. Remember when God brought them out of Egypt, he told Pharaoh, I am bringing my people out of Egypt so they will worship me. God was making and forming and shaping a people to be a worshiping people, a people that would worship him, that he would be the central focus of their identity, that he would be the, that, that their lives would be centered around their worship of him. 
And so we're going to go a little out of order over the next couple of weeks. Um, If you would turn to Exodus chapter 25, we're going to look at chapters 25 through 27 this morning. And next week, um, Pastor Josh Staley, uh, who's one of our pastors at Soma Midtown, is going to come and and teach us next week. Um, We're going to kind of reverse it back into uh, chapters 21 through 24, and he's going to look at several Uh, the first of several covenant renewals between God and his people. But this week, we are going to dive into what is called the tabernacle, the place of worship that the people of God would construct. And what we are going to see this morning is the tabernacle is a microcosm of creation. The way that creation was meant to be, the God of the universe dwelling on earth, in communion with humanity. And so we're going to look in Exodus chapter 25. And um, as we look at some of the specifications here of the tabernacle, uh, the furniture inside it, how the tabernacle was to be constructed, we just don't have time to go into every detail and just kind of nerd out on all of these things. Um, it, it gets pretty technical. We're also not going to spend time connecting every piece of furniture in the tabernacle and every way in which the tabernacle was constructed to Jesus and specific ways in which that happens. There's nothing wrong with those things. That, those are really interesting studies to dive into and to spend time on. But there are lots of great books and, and resources that we could point you to if you're interested in doing more of that, that, could, that, that, that dive into it way better than I ever could in a, in a brief time that we have this morning. But what we are going to do this morning and in the weeks following is that we are going to really look at what the tabernacle meant to the people of Israel. What did it mean for them in this life stage as a people, in this season of life, in this time, and in this space where they were? What did it teach them about God and how they were supposed to live in light of their knowledge of God? And so if you would read with me here in the first nine verses of Exodus chapter 25, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel. That they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And fine twined linen. Goat's hair. Tanned ram skins. Goat skins. Acacia wood. Oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrance of incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the for the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture. So you shall make it. A couple of things stick out to me in those first nine verses. The first is that this list of items that God says that Moses should collect from the people, these aren't what I would think would be your typical traveling through the desert items that you would have on hand. I mean, we're talking about uh, precious metals and precious stones and fine linen and all of these really, really uh, priceless materials. 
But remember when the, when the Israelites left Egypt, the author of Exodus records that the Egyptians actually gave them lots of stuff. The Egyptians lavished on them lots of these materials, lots of these things to take with them, kind of as a bounty as they were leaving the land of Israel. And so God says, take these things that came from the Egyptians, that came from the land of Egypt, collect those and use these to build this tabernacle. The second thing that sticks out to me is that God made it very clear that his instructions were to be followed down to the letter in verse 9. Exactly how I show you to make this tabernacle, this place of worship, exactly based on my instructions are how you were to build this. God was not allowing the people to have artistic license in the way that they built this tabernacle. He gave them very specific instructions about how it was supposed to be built, the materials that were supposed to be used. And he said, I want you to follow this down to the letter. Why? Because the God of the universe was coming to live with them. He was coming to dwell with them. And if God was going to live there, his home needed to be exactly the way he wanted it to be. He was communicating something about himself to the people. And throughout these chapters, chapters 25, 26, 27, and then all the way towards the end of the book in chapter 38, we see that God refers to this tabernacle, this place, by a few different names. In chapter 25, verse 8 that we just read, he calls it a sanctuary, a sacred place. In chapter 25, verse 9, he calls it a tabernacle, which is the Hebrew word for dwell or to live. In chapter 27, verse 21, he refers to it as a tent of meeting. There was supposed to be a relationship, a meeting that happened in this place. The tabernacle of the covenant or the tabernacle of the testimony mentioned in chapter 38 because this place was to communicate something. These different names were significant because this tabernacle, this place of worship, wasn't just made, uh, wasn't just meant to be some makeshift space, a place where the Israelites just could go on the Sabbath day, a place where they just have they they could just come and and do their thing on the Sabbath and then leave. These names, these different names given to this space by God, speak to the role that it was to play in the lives of God's people. And so it's hard sometimes for us to visualize what this looked like by just reading the words. So I put a a few pictures up on the screen. And Pat, if you could click that first one, we'll dim the lights. I know we don't have a great uh, backdrop here. But this is an artist's rendering based on Uh, the instructions and and the descriptions given here in the book of Exodus of what this tabernacle might mean and what significant or might look like. What's significant about this is look at where the tabernacle is placed in the camp and what that signifies. The place of worship is right in the middle. 
and all of the tribes of Israel numbering in the millions. So there are probably way more dwelling spaces than what we see here in this picture. All of these people, millions of people, their livestock, their possessions, everything surrounding the outside of this tabernacle structure because the worship of God, the place where God lived was right in the middle. And their entire lives as a people revolved around God and where God was. From, 20, from chapters 26 and chapter 36, what we learn is that this tabernacle structure, and if you'll hit the next slide, Pat, this tabernacle structure, and you don't need to read what those say, I'm going to explain it, was basically just a, 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 a construction of poles and curtains. Um, it, nothing that was, um, that was super, um, you know, uh, well, anyway, they had to pick this thing up. They had to break it down. They had to set it back up. They had to travel with it as they went through the desert. It has to be set up and torn down and packed up. But it wasn't some cheap prefab configuration as we just read. These curtains in it that, that covered the entire place were made from fine linen and colored yarn. The poles that held these curtains were made of acacia wood, which is a very hard and durable wood. And as you see here, there are three parts of the tabernacle that move from lesser to greater degrees of importance and holiness. The most holy place, which is back there in the back of the tent structure. The holy place, which is the next on the front of the tent structure. And then that outer courtyard there. In the most holy place there in the back, there is only one piece of furniture. And that is the Ark of the Covenant. And that's kind of an artist's rendering of what this piece of furniture would, would, would look like. It's a wooden chest that's overlaid with gold that cannot be touched. And so there's a series of rings and poles that were used to carry this ark from place to place. And we learn later in the book of Leviticus that the tablets, the stone tablets that God had given Moses to record the words of God on were placed inside this chest. The top of the cover of the chest was called the mercy seat. And we read that this is where God's presence would specifically dwell. This is where God would meet with Moses as Moses went into this most holy place to hear from God, to intercede on behalf of the people with God. And on each side sat these golden cherubim. And there's kind of a human-animal combination, kind of looks like a griffin uh, or a sphinx, in an Egyptian sphinx. But it was, it was to evoke this idea of the, these cherubim were, were considered heavenly creatures, supernatural creatures. This is where God would dwell. And on this mercy seat, on the top of this chest, as the people would make sacrifices, blood sacrifices, animal sacrifices, because of their sin, that blood would be, would be brought into this most holy place and it would be sprinkled 
on the top of this mercy seat. This ark, this piece of furniture was the center of gravity in the worship of God. This is where God specifically would dwell. Okay, as we, Pat, you can flip that off and uh, Tom, if you can grab those lights. As we move out of the most holy place, we move into what is called the holy place. And a curtain separated it from the most holy place. And this space contained three pieces of furniture. A table that held the bread of presence. A golden lampstand used to light the tabernacle during the night. And an altar for burning incense. And then finally, that third part of the tabernacle, if you remember, it was the courtyard. And in this courtyard, there was a bronze altar used for burnt offerings required by God because of the sin of the people. A bronze basin for the priests who we're going to get into in a few weeks were to wash their hands and feet in before they entered the tent. So again, we're not going to dive into all of these different things. There's a lot of great resources that you can find uh, more information about those and connection points with those. But all of this, the structure, the curtains, the poles, the furniture, and the furniture symbolism, the quality of the materials, fine fabrics, precious metals, beautiful stones, the precise dimensions and the specific instructions that God gave, all of this represented something very, very central that God wanted his people to know about him, and that was he is majestic. That he is God over all. That he is God over creation. All these materials that were used to build this space represented the goodness and the beauty and the order with which God had created this world. This was to be a sacred space for the people of God. Living in a fallen world, in a chaotic world, this tabernacle, this space where they would come and they would worship God, where God's presence would live, pointed them to a God who was and a God who has a specific desire for this world and for the way that humanity would relate to him. And oftentimes when we talk about the tabernacle and then when we talk about later on down the road, the temple that was built, we talk about the symbolism of the tabernacle and the temple through a redemptive lens. But oftentimes that, oftentimes that redemptive lens is only about the sacrifices and the offerings that took place inside the tabernacle and inside the temple that, that, um, that allowed a sinful, unholy people to be in the presence of a perfect and holy God. But the significance of the tabernacle and later on the significance of the temple was not confined to just personal, individual redemption. The tabernacle was a holy, sacred space in the midst of a world wrecked by the fall, wrecked by the effects of sin and death. It was to be a space that was marked out as different because God was there. Because God dwelled there. And similarly, the people of God, they were God's holy nation 
marked out in the midst of all of the other nations of the earth who didn't know about the one true God or didn't recognize him as God. And like so many things that we've seen in the book of Exodus up to this point, from the time Israel left Egypt, the tabernacle was part of God's act of formation. His act of shaping their identity, not just for their own sake and for their own blessing and for their own relationship with him, but so that through them and through their knowledge of him, their worship of him, their drawing closer to him, their reflection of him in the way that they acted as a society and treated each other, that the nations of the world would know the truth about God. Remember what God said to Pharaoh. Everything that I am doing for my people, bringing them out of Egypt so they could worship me, was so that you will know that I am God. That there is one God, and it's Yahweh, the God of Israel. And like I mentioned down the road, Israel would build a temple a beautiful, ornate, massive structure in Jerusalem that was fashioned after this tabernacle that we just looked at. Entered, and the temple worship, the worship of God that happened in this temple space was at the very center of their identity as a people. But if you remember, because they walked away from God, generation after generation after generation, not acknowledging that they were God's people, not acknowledging that they were set apart for a specific purpose by God. They began to look more and more like the nations around them, worshiping their gods, adopting their practices, that the society that God had built to reflect the truth about him began to look more and more like every other society in the world. And because of that, God judged and disciplined his people and the Babylonian Empire invaded the land of Israel. And they sacked Jerusalem. And they tore down this temple that the Israelites had built. The center of their identity. The thing that re represented their relationship with God. And as they were taken into captivity, there was mourning and there was weeping. Because the reality had set in that they had not been worshipers of the one true God, that their lives had reflected the worship of other gods. And because that, now, their identity as a people was in peril. When a remnant returned to Israel, after 70 years of captivity, one of the first things that they did was to begin the process of rebuilding a temple so that they could worship God. So again, they could begin to acknowledge their, their relationship with Yahweh, the one true God, was at the center of their identity as a people. And while that temple was rebuilt, it was just a shadow of what that former temple had been. And while the worship in that temple was reestablished and continued, it didn't hold the same place in their society like it once did. But then Jesus steps on the scene. And Jesus begins to say some very interesting things. 
Some things that would have caused the people in that day to say, wait, what's he trying to say here? In John chapter 1, verse 14, John refers to Jesus as the Word. The Word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. That same Word is the Word that was used for the tabernacle. That Jesus Christ, God became flesh, and he tabernacled. He dwelt, he lived among us. And you remember what Jesus said in chapter 2, when he looked at the temple, and he made that statement that in three days, that this temple will be torn down, and in three days, I will raise it up again. And they're like, you're crazy. This took hundreds of years to build. How are you going to raise it up and rebuild it in three days? It was because he was referring to himself. That Jesus took that same language and that same idea. This space that was built. This sacred space that represented the God of the universe. A transcendent, holy, perfect, majestic God coming to dwell on earth, that now the temple was walking around the streets of Jerusalem, was talking with people, teaching people, ministering to people, healing people. The temple of God, the presence of God, was eating and drinking with non-religious people, with Gentiles, with sinners. Jesus had come to dwell And John says that we have seen the glory of God. The glory of God in his only son. Full of grace and full of truth. Jesus Christ came to show us who God is. That glory that had resided in the most holy place of the tabernacle, the most holy place of the temple, the place that only Moses and then the high priest could, that would come after could enter in one time every year. That glory, the physical manifestation of Almighty God was now walking and talking in the person of Jesus Christ. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? What was the purpose of the temple? So that the people of Israel could know God and be in the presence of God. Jesus Christ fulfilled the purpose of the tabernacle. Jesus Christ in himself fulfilled the purpose of the temple. No more offerings, no more sacrifices, no more having to go to a specific place to meet with the presence of God. Jesus Christ offered himself. Jesus Christ is the temple of God, a once and for all sacrifice that allows people who are unholy, of the who are sinful, created beings to be in the presence of the creator. Not just one people, not just one race, not just one group of people, not just one nation. But when Jesus Christ came, he extended the good news of the kingdom, that life with God, in the presence of God, under the rule of God, is available now. And it's available to everyone who would put their faith in him. 
But God was not done in Jesus. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, listen to these beautiful words that John writes. His vision that God showed him of what was to come. John wrote in verse 22 of chapter 21, And I saw no temple in this city, this new creation, this new city that God had made, because he says, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. God's purpose and God's plan that he had begun all the way back in Abraham to say, I'm calling you away from your people, out of your homeland. I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to multiply your descendants so they number more than the sand and the sea and the stars in the sky. I'm going to bless you so that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. What John sees in that vision is that one day God will accomplish that plan. God will accomplish those purposes that people from every tribe, Every tongue, every nation will see him, will know him, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is God, that he is Lord. But here's the cool thing. Between Jesus' first coming, where he announced, I am the temple, and his second coming, where there will be no temple because we will all live in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Between those comings, something else is true. Jesus, the true and perfect temple, went back to his Father. But listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 3. The Apostle Paul writing to a group of Christ followers who lived in the city of Corinth. And here is what he says. Do you not know that you, are God's temple. That you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Jesus didn't take the presence of God with him back to the Father. He left his presence here for those who would believe. God's people, his church, this is where God lives now. Not in this building, not in a building with a steeple. And he lives in me that know him and that follow him. Through his spirit, God dwells in us and God dwells with us. His glory, his name, his presence is being known in this world through us. That the the, 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 what God intended for the tabernacle, what God intended for the temple, what people experienced in Jesus Christ, God is accomplishing through us today. That you and me, we can know him. We can live in his presence. And that through us, this world can know him as well. Through our lives and through the word of the good news that we proclaim. We looked at this passage a few weeks ago with Pastor Nate. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes these words. 
as you have come to the Lord, who is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourself, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. The tabernacle for us today as we look at it, it doesn't tell us what to do as Christians. It doesn't tell us how to live as Christians, but it speaks to why. Why we are who we are. And why God has called us to live in the way that he's called us to live. The message in God's instructions couldn't be misunderstood. The place where God lives was to be designed and furnished and built the way God wanted. And not only was the tabernacle to de- uh, was the tabernacle God's to design, the Israelites were God's to form and to shape as He wanted as he intended them to be. And this same reality is communicated all through the New Testament to the followers of Jesus. Because we are God's temple. Because God's spirit dwells within us and God's spirit lives through us. God has ownership in your life. God has ownership over my life. We aren't given artistic license to just live the way we think is best, to fashion and to shape our lives in the way we desire. God says, my spirit dwells in you. You are my temple now. And I have instructions for how you are to be built. And I have a specific way in which I want to form and shape you both as individuals and corporately as a church. And I'm so glad over the first two years of our church here, in our teaching and our discussions together, they've centered around Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' teaching and, and his words to his disciples in the upper room when we look through those passages in the book of John. These spiritual practice and formation series that we are dipping in and out of. As we have walked through the book of Exodus, In all of these ways, we are seeing that as the people of God, God is communicating to us, this is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to think and to feel and to make choices. This is how I want you to treat your body in relationship to this world. This is how I want you to be in community with each other, people that know me and people that don't know me. I want you to live in a different way, in a way in which Other people who are searching for life, who are searching for understanding, who are searching for goodness and beauty can know me and can know the truth about me because they know you and they are in relationship with you. God is shaping our identity. God is shaping who we are as a people. This is what's true of us. And that truth means something for our lived experience. And as I close, I just want to give us two ways to be thinking about this. And I don't want us to misunderstand this because this is kind of antithetical in our cultural Christian context here in the United States. We don't gather here on Sundays for worship. We are worshipers every day of the week. We gather here on Sundays 
in the midst of a life of worship. This is part of our life of worship. This isn't the sum total of what it means for us as the people of God to live with God under his rule and to worship him as God. That is the purpose of our gathering here each and every Sunday together because we rehearse in this gathering the truth of who we are. That's why we read scripture on the screen each and every Sunday together. That's why we sing songs together. That's why we listen to the word of God together. That's why we take the bread and the juice together. We are doing all of these things. That's why we pass the peace together. That's why we leave this space with a benediction and a blessing and a good word for the road every single Sunday because it helps us as a people to rehearse what is true about God, that we are gathered in this space every week as a place of hope, a presence of God's kingdom in the midst of the kingdom of darkness. That we are marked out as a people, as a sacred people for God's own possession. And this is a reflection of that each and every week. We remind ourselves other of those things. But we are also scattered out into our city. We leave this space. And we understand because we are the temple of God that there is no division between sacred and secular. That's a false dichotomy because everywhere we go, that place is a sacred place because God is there. Because we are there with, God is there with us. Everywhere we go and everything we do is sacred. Worshippers, we are worshipers who live in neighborhoods, go to school, are employed across the marketplace, have relationships with all different kinds of people. And in the midst of that, we live with an awareness that the thousands of little moments in each and every one of our days are opportunities to worship Jesus, to live life with God under the rule of God, to rehearse in our own lives, our families' lives, our relationships, our work, our studies to rehearse that story that shapes who we are. Our identity is God's chosen people. Our lives are scattered. They are, and, and as God scatters us across this city, we can be filled with reasons to fear, reasons to be tempted to worship other gods, lesser gods, to find life in other places. But when we bring these fears and these temptations into this space on Sundays, we're reminded again and we're strengthened by the hope that we have in Jesus, the identity that we have as God's people, and we are sent back out into the world to live with that hope. So our gathering together and our, they are a rhythm that reminds us that we are God's people. And we're not just God's people in this space, but we are God's people in every space we enter across this city. Ordering our lives around how God intended creation to be. Living in harmony with him and worship of him in every aspect of our existence. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, 
not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing for us an eternal redemption. You are the temple of God. I am the temple of God. If we have put our hope in the redemption that has been brought through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so as we come this morning to take a piece of the bread and dip it into the juice, we are doing that as an act of remembrance that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, that Christ is coming back again. And we proclaim that to each other as a hope to secure our identity, to give us hope as we scatter back out into the world this week, to be worshipers of God in every place that we go and everything that we do. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you to come. We'll have stations up here in the front. We'll have a gluten-free station in the back for those who need that. Please come and let's do this together, reminding each other of the hope proclaiming to ourselves and each other that we are the temple of God through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on our behalf. Let me pray for us. I encourage you to take a couple of minutes here as the piano begins to play and to reflect on this, to pray, to just sit quietly in the space, in this space, in the presence of God and each other. Before you come up and take this, God, we, we ask that these truths would be rooted down deep into our heart. We pray that we would understand what it means that your presence is with us, that your presence is in us, Lord, as we pray here so often, we ask that as we scatter out into the world this week, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, that people will be able to say, I know what God is like because I know them. I know them and I know what God is like. Make that true of us as a people. Make that true of us as a church in this community. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.